mission of our Lord Jesus Christ. When I was a little kid and people said something hurtful, we would sometimes chant a, a rhyme. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Perhaps you know that one or something similar. Is it true, though? Is it true that words can never hurt me? I think many of us by experience can testify that words can hurt deeply. Words can actually destroy. Words can destroy relationships and happiness and even lives. When we listen to twisted truths and outright lies and we believe them, we give them credit, they can seep into our bodies like water and into our bones like oil, to quote the psalmist. Words are powerful for good or for ill. They can build or they can destroy. They can edify or they can tear down. And there's a reason why words are powerful. And that reason is that the reality in which we live is a reality which is word-based. You remember, children, how God, in Genesis 1, how he made everything? Psalm tells us, Psalm 33, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. And how does God take care of this beautiful creation that he spoke into existence? Hebrews chapter 1 tells us, Christ upholds the universe by the word of his power. We come to Genesis chapter 3 this morning, and we see and we learn that rejecting the word of God disbelieving the word of God, not trusting in the word of God, not obeying the word of God, brings the fall. It brings destruction. It brings death. Because to go against the word of God is to strive against the very structure of reality, and you will always lose. All it brings is misery. Now we look around in this world and we see evil, and we see suffering, and we see bad things, and we little tiny human beings, we sit in judgment over the judge of all the earth, and we say, God, why this? And why that? We shake our finger at God and we say, how dare you? We demand a theodicy. We say, God, give us an accounting of your righteousness. Explain this, God. We question God. We challenge God. We rail against God. We accuse God. We blaspheme God. And the worse things get, the more we double down as sinful human beings. At the end of the Bible, Revelation chapter 16, verses 10 and 11, just turn there very quickly. 
Revelation chapter 16, verse 10 and 11. God is pouring out his just judgments upon the earth for man's sin. Man is reaping what he has sown. The fifth angel, chapter 16, verse 10, the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish. And then what happens? And they cursed the God of heaven for their pain and source. They did not repent of their deeds. That's what sinners do. They double down and they curse and they blaspheme. I know of a man many years ago in Brazil who was dying of a tongue cancer, a mouth cancer. His, he had lived a godless life and his tongue was literally falling out in pieces. But with the little that he had left, he did not lose one opportunity to curse God. On well, the text this morning, God teaches sinners that the source of all misery is not Him, but it's us. The source of all misery is our refusal to listen to his word. As we come to chapter 3, this is from the first chapter onwards, this is historical record, but because it's dealing with the very beginning of time, it's exalted prose. It's glorious, the language here, also in chapter 3, the way it's all put together. There are all kinds of deep levels of meaning. We could spend a lot of time on this chapter. I had hoped to preach on the entire chapter, but I couldn't. There's just too much. So this morning we'll focus on the first eight verses and we'll focus on the, the heart of the issue at this point. The heart of the issue is the word of God. Here in chapter 3, we have the fall of man into sin. This is one of the four most significant moments in the history of the human race. The four most significant moments are the creation, the fall, redemption, and restoration, or the glorification of all things. And these verses that, were, that are before us are so important because without these few verses, and especially without verse 6, we wouldn't have the rest of the Bible. All the rest of the Bible we have in front of us because of what's happening in our text this morning. It changes everything. The entire history of the human race is at stake in this scene in the garden. And so let's go there. We're in the garden. The Holy Spirit tells us that the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. That's verse 1. And there's very, something very striking here. We can't see it in the English, but take a look at the last verse of chapter 2. The man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. 
Now, chapter 3, now the serpent was more crafty. Now, children, if you look at those two words, they don't look the same, do they, in English? But in Hebrew, they're almost perfectly identical. I tried to, I sat a long time trying to figure out how to, to let you in on this as, as English speakers. I don't want to have a, a Hebrew lesson. This is not what preaching is for. But just to kind of get an idea, let's, let's say it this way. Let's say we write the word naked as exposed, but we abbreviate it. So we write EXP apostrophe D. You got that? EXP apostrophe D, exposed. And then let's go to verse 1 of chapter 3, and instead of crafty, we'll write experienced, but let's abbreviate that. EXP apostrophe D. That's kind of how it looks in the Hebrew. They look the same, but they mean different things. But there's a reason they look the same. The Lord could have used another word for prudent or crafty or wise, but he chose this one. There's a connection between the end of chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3. And the connection is basically this. Man and woman, male and female, they're there in their innocence. They're there in their purity. But then that same word is used to describe the serpent. And as things develop, we'll see that he's anything but innocent and pure. The word crafty in itself here in verse 1 isn't necessarily negative. It could go either way. The Bible uses it sometimes for, for something negative or malevolent. But in Proverbs, the word is used for prudence, for being wise. In fact, the Lord Jesus, in Matthew chapter 10, verse 16, even tells us that we need to be as wise as serpents and as innocent as doves. Wise in the sense of sharp, really with it, capable, discerning, very able. So this very clever, sharp animal was the cleverest of them all. But look at the end of the verse. He was cleverer than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. Now, children, you remember what the Lord did in chapter 1? He made things, and what did he say about them? He saw, he looked, and it was very good. And then he made some more things, and he saw, and he looked, and it was very good. And at the end, he said, he looked at everything he had made, and it was very good. So the serpent's included in that. The serpent was not made malevolent. It was not made evil. It was not made sinful. It was not made as something to oppose God. The serpent was one of those good creatures that God made. So what's it doing then? How did it turn? What happened? Well, the devil is in the details, isn't it? That becomes clearer later in Scripture what's happening here. Later in Scripture, we, we learn about the fall of some of the angels and about the leader of those fallen angels. We learn about the, the ancient serpent, the father of lies, the deceiver of the whole world. But here in chapter 3, God doesn't go into those details. Because that's not the point right now. Chapter 3 is not a philosophical treatise about the origin of evil in the universe. 
It is not a theological treatise on the eternal decrees. We will learn more about these things as we go through the scriptures and as Revelation progressively teaches us more and more and we get more and more deeply into the revelation of God. But right now, what's in focus is something very simple. In a perfect creation where man has every gift and every resource necessary to serve God faithfully, Will he live by every word which proceeds from the mouth of God? This is the test. In the Bible, the word for test and the word for temptation are two sides of the same coin. We read from James chapter 1, and sometimes the English version said test, and sometimes the English version said Tempt, it's the same word in Greek, exactly the same word. It depends on the context, how we translate it. What God uses to test our faith, the devil uses to try and tempt us to turn away from him. And that's what's happening right here. What's happening right here is under the sovereignty of God. From him, it is not a temptation to sin because God cannot be tempted and does not tempt anyone to sin. But God is testing. God is testing Adam and Eve. And the devil is tempting. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field. Well, we've met the beasts of the field before in Genesis chapter 2 and Genesis chapter 1. And just a few verses ago, Adam has exercised his lordship over this very serpent by naming him. So the test is happening in our created reality, in our domain. And the question is, will man, male and female, will they exercise dominion? Will they ensure that each creature is existing to the maximum potential glory that it can possibly give to God? Will they guard the garden? Will they keep the word and protect the garden from any intrusion of anything which does not please God? When we come to verse 2, the serpent starts speaking. Now, Eve is, she hasn't been around for very long. She's an, she's an adult, she's not a baby, but she's an adult without a lot of experience. The world's all new. Animals were not created to talk. So this is a rather surprising thing. But then again, there are lots of surprising things as she looks around this beautiful creation that God has made. So it's not necessarily right away a sign of something being wrong, even though the gift of language is specifically for human beings. And he says... Did God actually say that the words he uses express a lot of surprise? You've got to be kidding. Are you, are you serious? Did God actually say this? It's kind of a mocking question. It's a very disrespectful question. He's using the divine gift of language to question the language of the divine gift in Genesis chapter 2. And then he speaks to Eve, but he includes Adam. It's hard for us to see in English because we, a few centuries ago, got rid of 
the difference between the second person singular and the second person plural pronouns used to be that if you were speaking to one person, you would, see, you would say thou. If you are speaking to more than one person, you would say ye or you. That we don't have that distinction anymore. But back in, in chapter 2, when, when God said to Adam, don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that was you, thou, you singular. And now the serpent says, you guys, he's speaking in the plural, you guys are not allowed to eat anything? Are you serious? Is that what God said? So he's not quoting God exactly. There's one other thing which he leaves out. Look back in chapter 2, verse 16. God puts man in the garden to work it, to keep it, to develop it, to guard it. And then in verse 16, he says, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden. What's the word surely doing there? What does that mean? We don't talk like that very much anyway. Well, the structure there is a structure which is intensive. It means, literally, it's like this. Eating you shall eat. In other words, go for it. Just eat to your heart's delight. There are no restrictions. Just enjoy every tree of the garden. It's a very generous gift. And the serpent actually manages to take those generous words of God and make them sound stingy. You can't eat anything from any tree. That's what the devil does. God's word is good. God's word brings life. The devil twists God's word. The devil likes to make God not look generous but stingy. The devil likes to make it seem to us that God's word and God's commands and God's will are things that destroy our joy and our freedom and our happiness. I was speaking with a young person the other day and he said, seems like serving God is so limiting. You can't do what you want. You can't have fun. And the devil's like, yeah, that's what I want you to think. It's not true. They say that generals always fight the last war. There's a big war. One side wins, the other side loses. And then they kind of look at where they went wrong. And so they say, we're not going to do that again next time. But next time, it's a different time. It's a different century or it's a different decade, different technology, different strategies and tactics. And if you're fighting the last war, you just lose again. An example of that is the Maginot Line in in the north of France, because in the First World War, the war was very static with all those trench systems, and just kind of sat there and hardly moved. The line didn't move very quickly. So the French thought, wow, now we know what to do. We're going to build this huge line of fortifications on our northern border, and, and the enemies will never get through that. They were fighting the last war in World War II because what did the Germans do? They did the Blitzkrieg. They, they got their fast tanks and, and, and their, their uh, motorized um, units and they just zoomed right around that line and penetrated deep into the heart of France. The French generals were fighting the last war. Because things change. The enemy changes. His tactics change. You know what? 
The devil doesn't change his tactics. He's always fighting the same way. But the devil, he's not very imaginative. He doesn't change things up. It's always the same old, same old devil. Back there in the garden, and still today, he says the same damn lies. He says, God doesn't love you. You can't trust God. God can't make you happy. God cramps your style. Throw off the oppression of God's will and live your way so that you can sing, I did it my way. That's the way to be. Now, we don't know the details here, but the wording in the text here, chapter 2 and chapter 3, it does make it seem like Eve had heard of the prohibition from her husband. The reason is, is that the, in chapter 2, she doesn't exist yet when God says, you shall not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's given to Adam, second person singular, you. And later on, after the fall, in chapter 3, verse 11, God talks to Adam. He says, have you, second person masculine singular, have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, second person masculine singular, not to eat? So God reminds Adam of the command which was given directly to him. So perhaps, we don't know for sure, but perhaps he passed that on then to Eve. Now, how does Eve respond to this attack? Verse 2. Well, she starts off pretty well. She gives a fairly orthodox answer, but she leaves a few things out and makes a few little changes which are important. First of all, she leaves out the, the surely eating bit. She leaves out that, that wording which demonstrates the glorious generosity of God's command. She just says, yeah, we, yeah, we can eat. We can eat of the trees in the garden. And then she adds something. She says, but we can't touch that one tree. We can't even touch it. Can't eat from it, but we can't even touch it either. Where'd you get that from? God didn't say that. Did Adam maybe say, you know what, Eve? Like God said, don't eat from that tree, so we're probably better off staying away from it. In fact, let's not even touch it. Maybe they talked about it that way. We don't know. But here's the problem. Eve lets the enemy determine the field of battle. And that is a classic mistake. You don't let the enemy decide where the battle will be fought because he chooses the best ground for himself. And the devil decides that the field of battle will be God's character. If God can be trusted, if his word can be believed... There's one key thing which makes us hold our breath. It horrifies us. You remember, children, what the change was when we went from chapter 1 to chapter 2, how the Bible was speaking about God. In the first chapter, God, the great Elohim, the great creator. And then in chapter 2, all of a sudden, the language changed, and it was, it was Lord God. Yahweh God, the covenant God, the one who relates to his creation, to his creatures as a loving father. 
And all through chapter 2, we have that language about God. Lord God, Lord God, Yahweh, faithful, covenant, loving God. And then the devil shows up. And how does he talk about God? Look at this. Look at verse 1. We still got the language there, right? First one, any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. Then, in that same verse, the serpent starts speaking. He says, did, did God, did God actually say? It's a very subtle change, but it's an important change. And the woman accepts it. You see how she answers? She says in verse 3, God said, God, you know that great distant creator that puts all these rules that we have to follow? God. It's, it's language which distances him from us. And so the woman is on very thin ice here. She's in a very dangerous place. And then she also minimizes the results of sin. She says, yeah, God said we, we, we're not supposed to eat of that fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, neither touch it, lest you die. But God didn't say that. God didn't say, well, don't, don't eat it because maybe you'll die. He didn't say that. God said, if you eat that, you shall surely die. Dying, you shall die. It's a certainty. And Eve kind of skates around that truth. But she does say, God said, Eve has heard the word. She heard it through Adam, but she has heard the word. And the question is, will she believe the word? Or will she believe her senses, her desires, her conclusions about life? This is the question. Do I accept the terms of this conversation? Do we sit in judgment over God's word and God's motives and God's reasons? God spoke the world into existence. God is a God who speaks. Words are important. This is part of the fundamental structure of reality that words mean something. Postmodernism says words mean nothing or words mean anything, and that is revolt against reality and God. Words mean something. And even Adam are about to find that out. And the devil comes right back in verse 4. And he says the total opposite of what God said. He takes the, the actual structure of the language in chapter 2, and he just puts a negative in front of it. God says, you shall surely die. The devil says, nope, no, you shall not surely die. The total opposite of what God said. That should have been a clue to Eve. When somebody says the total opposite to what God is saying, that's time to stop and to think and to not proceed. The devil is brazen now. He's got the door a little bit open, and he pushes right through. He says, God is ripping you off. God is withholding good things from you. He doesn't want you to be like him. He wants to keep you down. What does the Bible say? Psalm 84, the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. The devil says that's not true. God is stingy. And God knows that your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. You will know. Curiosity here is powerful. But the pride here is powerful too. There's a desire to decide for ourselves what is and what isn't acceptable. 
So we can verse 6, and the woman saw that the tree was good for food and desirable. Now that's the same language as chapter 2. God made all kinds of trees that were good for food. That's verse 9 of chapter 2. And that were pleasant or desirable to the sight. Same language, exactly the same language. So Eve's not wrong when she recognizes that this tree looks good for food and looks desirable. But here's the problem. She says this tree is good. She's taken on the role of God to say what is good and what is not good because God told Adam, he says, this tree is not good. This tree is not desirable to eat from. And Eve says, you know what? I, I really don't agree. In fact, I think the opposite. So here's the question. What do I believe? What do I go by? How do I live my life? Do I live it by God's word? Or do I live it by my reason and my sense perception? What is your epistemology? What is your, your uh, theory of knowledge? Where do you get your knowledge from? The knowledge that you need to live by in this world. Do you get it from God by revelation? Or do you get it by the scientific method of your incredible intellect evaluating your surroundings and coming to your conclusions. Well, Proverbs tells us the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. So the woman saw, verse 6, the tree was good for food. It was a delight to the eyes or desirable to the eyes and it was desirable to make one Wise. We read or heard the Ten Commandments this morning from Deuteronomy chapter 5. And in Deuteronomy chapter 5, when it deals with the, the Tenth Commandment, it uses these two words. The two words that she uses here. It was a delight to the eyes or a desire to the eyes. And it was to be desired to make one wise. Two different words in Hebrew. They're there in Deuteronomy chapter 5. The words themselves are not bad. In fact, one of these words is used later on in Scripture to, to say that God desired Zion above all the other cities in Israel. The word's not bad. Desire is not bad. It's what you desire that's the question. Do you desire what God has told you is not good for you? Then we have a problem. You remember we read from James chapter 1. Desire. Wanting something which God has said, that's not for you. That desire conceived gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. Here is an agonizing, horrifying dilemma. Because woman is supposed to be a life giver. She is supposed to be helping Adam so that the world can be full of life. She's supposed to give birth to life. But here she is giving birth to death. You know, in one of his novels, Ernest Hemingway writes a dialogue where one character asks the other, how did you go bankrupt? And the the first guy answers, well, two ways. Gradually and then suddenly. And that's how catastrophes often happen. They, come, they happen slowly at first and then all of a sudden 
very, very quickly. That's what happens, too, with sin. We dither and, and dither, and, and we circle the drain, and we think, well, I'll just get a little bit closer to the middle here and, and feel the power of the water spinning around, and I can always back out if I want to, and all of a sudden, we're down the drain. We're gone. That's what happens here. Look at the end of verse 6. All of a sudden, the language speeds right up. She took, she ate, she gave, he ate. It's done. That quickly. She gave to her husband who was with her. He's right there. Just kind of looking. Didn't do a thing. Well, we'll talk about that in the next sermon. But suffice it to say for now that Adam is an accomplice before, during, and after the fact. There is no lordship there is no guarding by either male or female here. Man has fallen. And then we come to verse 7. The eyes of both were opened. Well, isn't that amazing, eh? The, the devil was right. Did they die? Did they fall down right away? They didn't die. They're still breathing. And their eyes are open. Didn't he say that? You won't die. Your eyes are going to be opened. That's often what the devil does, right? He kind of speaks kind of with half-truths. Half Their eyes are opened. And they know good and evil, but they've learned it the hard way. Instead of receiving it from God, they've learned it by experience. They knew glory. Now they know Shame, and they sow fig leaves to cover their shame and their nakedness. Here we have in the scriptures the first Armenians in history. I sinned, I can fix this. Let me just do something to fix it. Well, it doesn't work, it's pathetic. And so here we are at the end of. Our text, and you may be asking yourself, why did I get out of bed for this? I mean, I want to go to church to hear the gospel. I want to hear good news. That's what the gospel is. Where is the gospel? Well, we study these verses. We study the modus operandi of the enemy from a position of victory in Christ, redeemed, spirit-filled, freed from the dominion of the devil like we confess in Lord's Day 1. So we know the rest of the story. We know what Christ has done for us. He showed it to us right here this morning. He's washed all this guilt away. We're not hiding behind trees with our own works to try and cover our shame. We are gloriously pure and righteous in the Lord Jesus Christ. And as a washed congregation in Jesus' blood, we're reading this text this morning. Because he has erased all of those consequences by his death on the cross. And so as we, as we study this verse, these verses this morning, we study them to find out how our enemy will try to trip us up so that we can avoid his temptations. But there's more. There's a reason why I didn't stop in verse 7. I kept going to verse 8. Because they hear the sound of someone. Now, children... Scan the text here, starting from when the serpent talks in verse 1. You see that whenever God is referred to, it's just the word God. 
And do you see the change here in verse 8? Who did they hear? Who is God after we have sinned and rebelled and fallen and turned his glory into shame? Who is he? They heard the sound of the Lord God. He hasn't changed. He hasn't changed. He's the Lord God. In chapter 3, nine times the Holy Spirit uses this name for God. Lord God, Yahweh God, faithful covenant-keeping God who relates to his children with an eternal love in Christ. Nine times, three times three, a trinity of trinities. That means something. When the Holy Spirit repeats something three times, it means a lot. When he repeats it nine times, it means a whole lot. And it means that God is still our loving Father. It means that God's love is not conditional. It means, I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, O sons of Jacob, you are not destroyed. And that's our hope and that's our comfort. doesn't matter how much we fall, how much we trip up and mess up, how much of a mess we make of our lives. doesn't matter how many times we're stupid and fall into the folly of sin one more time. God does not change. He is the Lord, our God. We can always run to him. doesn't matter how filthy we are. We can always run to him and we will always find a loving embrace. We will never hear words which tell us to stay away. What do Adam and Eve do? They hear the sound of the Lord God. They run. They hide. They're feeling guilty. They're feeling shame. They hide themselves in the presence of the Lord. Why would you do that? Psalm 16 says, in your presence there is fullness of joy. Why would you run away from the presence of the Lord? It's because I heard the sound of the Lord God and I was ashamed. Because I was naked. There's guilt here. Now take a look at these words here in verse 8. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden. They heard the sound of the Lord God. In Hebrew, that's exactly the same words as saying they heard the voice of the Lord God. Or they listened to the voice of the Lord God. Or they obeyed the voice of the Lord God. Hearing, listening, obeying, same verb. Sound, voice of God, same word. What's the difference? When there's no faith, all you hear is the sound of God's approach in judgment. You hear and you hide. All there is is misery. But where there is faith, where there is trust in God's word, then we listen and we trust and then we obey. So there they are hiding themselves. There's no faith. There's just guilt. Now the devil said, you're going to be like God. So you would expect this meeting to be a really neat meeting of the heads of state. There's God and there's man equal to God. And there's woman equal to man and equal to God. Just have a meeting of the minds here of equals. Nothing like that. They run. And they hide because they're exposed. Now, maybe you're running in your life because of your guilt, 
because of misery that you've brought into your life through not listening to God's word. You need to know that nothing you can do will fix your situation. Maybe everybody knows about your situation. Maybe nobody does except God. But this one thing is true. Don't go sowing fig leaves to cover it up. Nothing you do can solve your problem. There is only one way out for us. And that's to run to him. To our Lord God, Yahweh God, our unchanging, eternal God, who has an eternal, unchanging love for you in the Lord Jesus Christ. You are baptized. You are washed. You are clean. You are holy, no matter how deep you've dug the hole of your life. Man hides, but God seeks. Man hides, but God speaks. Where are you? And then there's judgment. We're going to see that next, next time. There's judgment. But this also in wrath, God remembers mercy. And so we have speaking happening. The whole rest of the revelation of Scripture, the whole rest of the history of redemption in the Old Testament, speaking, God speaks the gospel at many times and in many ways. God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. And then finally, in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. Because the word is key to the creation and to the providence, the maintenance of the universe The word is a key factor in the fall into sin because we turn our backs on it. But the word is also central in redemption. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory. He is full of grace and truth. And that word sustains us and feeds us and carries us along to the final massive huge thing that's going to happen in the history of the human race and that is the 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 consummation of all things the restoration what do we read there at the end of the bible in revelation chapter 19 a warrior king arises he is the ruler of the universe all dominion is given to him he is faithful and he is true because he is the truth and he rides out to destroy all the enemies of God. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. That's our Lord Jesus. And he destroys the ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, the, the liar and the father of lies. He destroys him and all his lackeys, the deceiving beast and the false prophet. And it's in the power of that Word of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, that we can sing what we're going to sing in the rest of the service. Psalm 25, Lord, I know your word is truth. Lead me in your ways. And we'll sing that glorious hymn of the Reformation, Luther's A Mighty Fortress. And we'll sing, you know, the devil's strong. He's prowling about like a roaring lion seeking whom he can devour. But one little word shall fell him. That word is our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.